Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully to have some fun while we're doing it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. And now it's time for the weekly news and update, where Sam and I will discuss the most major pieces of drug policy news from the past week. Um, And this week, our news updates are a little marijuana heavy. A whole lot has been going on, especially for me personally, uh, because my law firm got to host presidential candidate Martin O'Malley um, at our offices this past week for a listening session in which he listened to input from uh, various stakeholders in Colorado about how legalization is going. Um, So that is not a news update. Sam, why don't you... kick us off with our first news item. All right, sounds good. And so mine actually isn't quite about marijuana, but it it is about THC. It's a kind of main psychoactive ingredient. So in the journal Biotechnology Letters, some biochemists at the Technical University of Dortmund, uh, which is in Germany, published a paper saying they had genetically engineered yeast that produces THC. So they claim to have produced another yeast strain also that uh, produces cannabidiol. And so as of right now, they do rely on precursor molecules. The, the article didn't say what, uh, but this is instead of just plain sugar directly in a THC. But it's still really impressive, uh, even though they can also only produce very small amounts. Uh, but, it, but it's a good demonstration of concept that could lead to uh, even more improvement and then maybe even eventually a commercialization down the road. Um, so this is, maybe this is me just being like naive about the science behind this, but I had no idea you could produce other chemicals from yeast. Oh Um, yeah. They do all sorts of weird stuff with it. (laughs) (laughs) I I heard just last month that they, uh, created some that produces oxycodone, the painkiller. So it seems to be a big thing now that you can, I guess you can make yeast make pretty much any drug if you, uh, try hard enough. Oh my god, I thought yeast was just for bread and beer. Um, <laughs> Not anymore. So what, are, <laughs> so what are the implications for being able to produce uh, like THC or other cannabinoids without growing the plants themselves? Yeah, I'm a little curious about this myself because the, the article that I was reading was saying that, I mean, right now a lot of the really high-potency marijuana plants are like 30% THC, uh, which is by weight. So they're already really good at producing this so for that it doesn't really make sense to to use yeast commercially but for some of the other uh smaller cbds it it that are much smaller amounts in the marijuana plant uh like other cannabinoids to... that are mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah, like other cannabinoids that are, are not as um fruitful as plentiful yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and so potentially for those and then um it does if they make them a lot more efficient maybe even for thc down the road but it seems to me that it just makes pharmaceuticalization a lot easier for this sort of thing 
Um, so moving on to our next uh, news item, this is kind of hard to miss if you are following politics in America at all, I guess. Um, but marijuana policy enjoyed a full six minutes in the limelight during this week's Republican debate on CNN. So the discussion kicked off with Rand Paul calling out the hypocrisy of certain presidential candidates um, who have admitted to using marijuana in their past but continue to support its prohibition. And obviously that statement or that sentiment could be made about past presidents and current presidents uh, and many, many other legislators and lawmakers as well. But given that, you know, this is a presidential debate, uh, Rand was definitely calling out uh, one other candidate in particular, a.k.a. Mm. Jeb Bush. Um, (laughs) which I thought it was a little awkward. Like I never liked the personal attacks in these debates, but, um, he made a good point about the overall hypocrisy. Um, and then he also did a good job highlighting the racial disparity in drug enforcement, uh, which I thought was particularly interesting to see like criminal justice, even getting a token nod during the Republican debates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one issue that seemed to be everyone was pretty much in agreement. There wasn't anyone disputing that fact of just, yep, this has definitely led to mass incarceration. Yeah, um, which I thought was also, I mean, there's been a lot of evolution in the past, in the recent, in recent years, not just on uh, the drug war, but clearly on criminal justice and racial justice as a larger topic, if that can come up uh, during the Republican debates, which like these are not necessarily progressive issues. Um, then, of course, there were like other some other disappointments like Chris Christie, um, who took his position that's been well carved out at this point that he would enforce federal law um, in marijuana legal states if um, he were to be elected, uh, which is just like sad uh how obvious it is that he's losing grip with the american public the last statement made was by carly fiorina and i thought this was the most um impactful and also the most unexpected at least for me where she actually talks about personally losing a child uh to addiction um and i thought it was very brave of her to share that story unfortunately she followed up that statement um with uh an incorrect implication that marijuana is far more dangerous than beer um so yeah i know so given her personal experience with like the struggles of having a family member um with substance abuse i wish she would be more open-minded to like effective harm reduction measures even more interestingly i thought was that she clarified the morning following the debate that even though um she thinks marijuana is this slippery slope gateway drug type Uh, substance. She also said um, that the drug war was a failure and that there are far too many people being incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses. All right. That's fantastic. And I mean, I've especially heard that she did really well at that debate and might be uh, really gaining steam with her campaign. So it's good to see that that the people can't even stand by these uh, prohibitionist uh, stances anymore and need to backpedal whenever they say them. And so for the next story this week is uh, actually taking us uh, international. So Vice UK uh, recently reported that police in Aberdeen, which is in Scotland, have begun this really aggressive campaign of drug testing people who are waiting in line for nightclubs. And so I was going to say randomly drug testing, but it's actually not random since it's just straight profiling. But what happened is that a few weeks ago, police arrived at at a place called Club Tropicana, 
with a drug sniffing dog and an itemizer, which uh, is a, a tool used for testing hand swabs for traces of illegal drugs. So they would go up and make people wipe their hands on this device. And so they also came back the following night, uh, testing a total of 100 people over the course of the weekend. And between all of these, they didn't even get a single positive result. Whoa, what? Mm -hmm. Which honestly... This is like... My first that's reaction... That's mind-blowing just for... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, some of my first reactions with these things is always, really? Not a single result? I mean, if you're randomly yeah, drug know. testing any population of 100 people, you're going to find something, but... It just goes to show the incompetency of them and uh, not even being able to... They're, they're just straight profiling a captive audience but can't even get any arrests out of it. Yeah, I know. That's what I was saying. That that actually surprises me that, you know, a nightclub full of clubbers mm -hmm. <laughs> would be completely drug-free. Yeah. Um, but this also reminds me of, like, random... Of, like, drug testing or, like, the ex the failed experiment of drug testing people on welfare. Like, mm -hmm. how many resources that takes to test every single one of them and to come back with so few uh, positive results. Yeah, exactly. And, and apparently they were touting this as kind of a success after a little while of uh, trying to promote this as a PR thing. But there's been such a public backlash. Uh, even the former head of their drug enforcement agency... Uh, came out in, uh, against this. So they've started backpedaling a little bit. And uh, the, the club Tr Tropicana owner, uh, his name is Tony Cochran, was quoted as saying that the club only had 30 minutes beforehand and that this this wasn't a choice whatsoever. And so they didn't have any permission whatsoever from the, the owners. And so this is just such a crazy violation of people's civil liberties. It's good to see that it's uh, getting rolled back. Definitely. Um, and... Ending on a more positive note, but I guess it's it's been a very presidential week for drug policy. So mm -hmm. this one is about um, Democratic front runner, uh, still currently front runner, uh, Hillary Clinton. The state. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so as we've discussed in previous episodes, heroin and prescription opiate drug abuse is causing an actual em epidemic throughout cities and towns um, all across the country, and many legislators, as we've uh, already discussed, are finally responding with actual harm reduction measures and community-based approaches instead of traditional criminalization. And as it turns out, this position has become so politically mainstream, so obviously popular and supported by the people, that finally uh, Hillary Clinton can jump on board with that um, as part of her platform as well. So earlier this week, Hillary did propose a $10 billion plan to co combat the drug epi epidemic, um, treat per people suffering from addiction uh, with actual treatment and love and care um, instead of continuing to incarcerate nonviolent drug users. So her plan includes uh, $7.5 billion in federal state partnerships to support and implement school and community-based programs to prevent and treat drug abuse, which we hope are not just continuing the status quo of like ineffective DARE programs. Um, and also includes expanding mental health coverage to provide long-term support for people who um, are struggling with addiction and also increasing access to naloxone by emergency medical care workers. Um, and during her announcement of this platform plank, uh, Clinton cited statistics showing that only 10% of Americans suffering from addiction or substance abuse are currently receiving the treatment they need. So if her plan 
uh, turns out to be one that is actually harm reduction based and does not just perpetuate like bad current quote unquote um, drug prevention uh, efforts, then it'll be a, a very much needed injection into the drug treatment community. Yeah, I mean, just kind of in the theme with everything else that we've been talking about, especially with if Hillary Clinton supports something, you know that it is mainstream and not considered fringe whatsoever anymore. And and so this is right, really that good this to must see be her polling really well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it does seem pretty promising in that I feel like most of the time when you hear about these uh, anti-drug packages being pushed through. Uh, there's always some huge uh, amount going towards law enforcement, too. And some of the, you know, co- people trying to be a bit more progressive will still just shift that balance a little bit. But it looks like this one is devoted entirely more towards the uh, actual mental health and, and treatment side of things. So if, if that is actually the case, that's uh, fantastic and pretty groundbreaking. All Indeed. Right. So this takes us to our forecast. Yeah, so the first one that we've got this week is uh, that next month, uh, the weekend of October 9th, there's going to be an event called Horizons, Perspectives on Psychedelics, happening in New York City. So it's advertised as an annual forum that examines the role of psychedelics in science, healing, culture, and spirituality. They bring together the brightest minds and the boldest voices of this movement to share their research, insights, and dreams for the future. Uh, So I've never been to this myself, but I've heard some really great things about it from uh, some SSTP folks and other people that I know. And uh, so I'm considering going this year. So if you're in the Northeast, be sure to check it out. We'll we'll be sure to put a link to it on our website at thisweekindrugs.org. Okay, and for our final forecast, this is kind of another news item, but I just couldn't narrow them down this week, but it's disguised as a forecast, so I'll tell you guys what to look forward to, too, at the end. (laughs) So over in the UK, more than 125,000 people have signed a petition supporting the legalization of cannabis on the UK government's official e-petition website, which means now that members of parliament are forced to officially debate the issue in parliament. It takes 100,000 signatures to trigger the issue to be debated, and the campaign was able to collect significantly more than that in less than four days. So just earlier this week, that petition went up, and by today, the time that you guys are uh, hearing about it, um, the like Parliament of the United Kingdom is going to have to uh, officially discuss marijuana legalization. So the petition specifically calls for Parliament parliament to make the production sale and use of cannabis legal um and the issue will now go before the house of commons petitions committee so um so get ready keep your eye out for further development on whether another country will take steps towards full adult use legalization of marijuana all right excellent forecasty spin there (laughs) All right. So everybody, this has been our our weekly news and forecast. And as always, we scour the news for this sort of thing all the time. But there's so much going on that that it is really hard to keep track of. So if you ever see anything in the news that interests you, especially if it's not marijuana related to help us uh, to find some other uh, uh, news about uh, some other sorts of drugs, be sure to shoot it our way. You can email it to us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. Go to the contact page on our website, thisweekindrugs.org, or just find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, So shoot that over to us, and we may include it in next week's show.
And now it's time for the drug of the month, where we dive into the background science, history, and current trends surrounding a different drug each month. September's drug of the month is nitrous oxide, and last week, Sam talked to you about the science behind nitrous oxide, how it interacts with the human body, its medical and recreational uses, and some of its potential side effects. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the history of the drug, who discovered and developed its medical uses, when people started using it, and how laws and attitudes around the drug have evolved over time. As you already know, nitrous oxide is a naturally occurring gas produced by bacterial emissions in the Earth's soils and oceans, and thus has also always been found in the Earth's atmosphere. It was first discovered by an English chemist and natural philosopher named Joseph Priestley in 1772. About 20 years later, an English physician, Thomas Beddoes, and a Scottish engineer, James Watt, got together to develop the first medical therapeutic uses of nitrous through inhalation, and then built the machine needed to administer it. This invention paved the way for clinical trials, and Beddoes established a research institute called the Pneumatic Institution for Relieving Diseases by Medical Air. Through this institute, a young colleague of Beddoes named Humphrey Davy continued experimenting with potential medical uses of the gas, and after witnessing the giggling fits of many of his patients, coined the iconic term laughing gas. Humphrey Davy went on to publish a book of his experiments and observations in which he describes inhaling nitrous himself and the pain relief he obtained, hypothesizing that nitrous could be used as an anesthetic in surgical operations. It was another 45 years before, actu- before doctors actually took note of his observations and began testing and using uh, nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. Since the very beginning, nitrous oxide has been preferred by dentists. So 45 years after Humphrey Davies' book, nitrous oxide was used for the first time as an anesthetic drug by American dentist Horace Wells. He had first seen laughing gas demonstrations at a traveling circus and observed that a man who injured his leg while on nitrous did not feel pain from his injury until after the effects of the gas wore off. Horace then realized he could use use nitrous oxide to similar effect on his patients. The very next day, Wells had the carney from the circus who was doing the laughing gas demonstrations come into his office and administer the laughing gas onto himself, and then had one of his associates extract a molar. So Wells, the dentist, himself became the first patient to be operated on under anesthesia. Horace Wells never patented his discovery because he believed that pain relief should be as free as the air. In the following weeks, Wells treated about a dozen more patients with nitrous oxide to overwhelmingly positive results. But during his first public demonstration at Harvard Med School, his volunteer patient said that he could still feel pain while having his, his tooth extracted and complained about general discomfort, and Wells was unfortunately booed off stage. This episode led to Wells' professional downfall and eventual suicide. It wasn't until almost 150 years later that Wells would go on to be recognized as the discoverer of anesthesia. Ironically, the circus carney who first demonstrated the effects of laughing gas to Wells was actually a former medical student named Gardner Quincy Colton. Despite Wells's failure to prove nitrous's efficacy to the medical establishment, Colton opened up a series of dental clinics all over New Haven and New York City, where he continued using nitrous oxide as an anesthetic based on Wells's methods. Over the next five years, Colton and his colleagues successfully administered nitrous oxide on more than 75,000 pa- 75, patients, 
and largely through these efforts, the use of anesthetics in dental surgery eventually became widely accepted. Meanwhile, as I've already alluded to, even during the 18th century, medicine was not the only use for nitrous oxide, and was in fact not even the most common use. While nitrous is sometimes referred to as hippie crack, recreational use of nitrous did not emerge in the 1970s, but rather further back to the 1790s. Laughing gas demonstrations like the one where Wells and Colton met had already become a fixture of traveling circuses and carnivals, where the public would pay a small price to inhale about a minute's worth of gas. Posh laughing gas parties had also become very popular among the British upper class as early as 1799. As Sam has already previously discussed, the most common, po the most common methods uh, nowadays for recreational use are either through whippets, like the small cartridges meant for whipped cream dispensers, or by using balloons filled from larger tanks. The most common modern-day method for the commercial production of nitrous oxide wasn't developed until the late 19th century by an American professor named George Poe, a notable scientist who was actually the cousin of the poet Edgar Allan Poe. Today, nitrous oxide is used in dentistry as an anxiolytic, which means um, as an anti-anxiety medicine, in conjunction with a more powerful local anesthetic. Nitrous is actually not a very powerful anesthetic, which is why it's much more commonly used in dental surgery than in more major surgery, but even so, it is usually only administered to the patient as a precursor to induce euphoria and relaxation, um, and then while the patient is already under, a more powerful anesthetic is then introduced to actually inhibit pain from the surgery. In the United States, possession of nitrous oxide is legal under federal law and is actually not subject to DEA oversight. It is, however, regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, which has the authority to prosecute under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act rebranding clauses, misbranding clauses, which prohibits the sale or distribution of nitrous oxide for the purpose of recreational consumption. Generally, nitrous is available for over-the-counter sales, but many states have laws regulating and limiting its possession, sale, and distribution. Such laws usually ban distribution to minors or limit the amount of nitrous oxide that can be sold without a special license. Some states have altogether banned the use of nitrous oxide for recreational intoxication, like in California, where it's a misdemeanor. So that's all for this week's segment of Drug of the Month and the history of nitrous oxide. Next week, Sam will be wrapping up our month of laughing gas episodes with some news and uh, some news and recent trends. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring in top policy experts to talk in depth about the biggest issues in the world of drugs. For this episode, we'll be talking to Eric Sterling, someone we consider a godfather to the drug policy reform movement. On paper, Eric is the executive director of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. But in reality, Eric wears so many hats that it's kind of hard to think of any drug policy group that he has not or has not at some point been involved with. Eric serves on the board of directors for Students for Sensible Drug Policy and Families Against Mandatory Minimums, is vice chair of Marijuana Majority, was a founder of the Marijuana Policy Project, and serves on the advisory boards of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, DRCNet, 
and flex your rights. A regular speaker at SSDP conferences, Eric is widely known within our network for his stories from the early years of fighting to end the war on drugs, back before most of us got involved, and sometimes from before many of us were even born. So for this week, we wanted to share this man's incredible wealth of institutional knowledge in a segment we're calling Storytime with Eric Sterling. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. Rochelle, Sam, it's a pleasure to join you today. So let's start off with the beginning of your story in the world of drug policy. You were actually a congressional staffer uh, for the Judiciary Committee, I believe, back in the 1980s, uh, when all of these major tough-on-crime bills were being pushed through. And you were actually responsible for drafting a specific, uh, a number of specific uh, legislation that enabled the war on drugs. Can you tell us a little bit what that was like? Um, It was very challenging because um, my world in drug policy reform, it actually started in 1976 when I joined Normal, when I was still a law student and testified before the Merrill, testified before the Pennsylvania legislature in favor of a bill to decriminalize marijuana. And after I started practicing law in 1976, I ran a little normal chapter out of my law office across the street from the courthouse in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. And I would you know, go to uh, the lobby of movie theaters or the street in front of movie theaters where appropriate movies were being exhibited and sell gold marijuana leaf pins to raise money for for Mm -hmm. normal Uh, and learned from uh, many of the outstanding lawyers that were part of normal's legal committee uh, the fine points of cross-examination of witnesses and how to uh, challenge the expert testimony of the government scientists in a marijuana case when I came to Washington in 1979, Jimmy Carter was still the president. He had run on a pro-marijuana decriminalization platform in 1976, and my marijuana decriminalization views were not uh, extraordinary or radical. Um, But uh, in 1981, when there was a change in some leadership in the Judiciary Committee and when Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as president, there was a big change in the political climate in Washington. And it happened that because I had been the attorney working on drug issues, I had organized an oversight hearing of the head of DEA in 1980. Um, This jurisdiction sort of fell to me, and I increasingly was involved in in processing the legislation as the climate became more and more intensely anti-drug. and it, it had a kind of skitzy feeling. I would go to the annual normal conference and kind of try mm-hmm. to stand in the back out of the view <laughs> of the cameras, you know, and, uh, you know, talk to my friends and sort of figure out, you know, sort of, you know, make perhaps strategic comments about what I thought the political situation was, struggling to, uh, to stay off camera. I'm sure that DEA <laughs> knew I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Uh, A week or two later, I'm setting up uh, a hearing uh, to ban the mail order sale of 
drug paraphernalia or to, uh, you know, do some other kind of thing. And so it was very, um, it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. And yeah, having those two different kind of viewpoints or roles, was it that you had essentially kind of slipped under the radar of the folks in Congress or were they pretty well aware, but just understood that you were able to to kind of separate those two things? I was not under the radar. Everybody that I worked with knew that I supported legalization. I Hmm. didn't try to conceal it. It It's not in my character. And I didn't think that that was a useful or safe way to try to operate. Um, You know, as a Quaker, um, you know, you try to live sort of openly and um, that was the the way I was used to operating. That's great. Um, My boss was Congressman Bill Hughes from New Jersey, and we had passed a lot of crime legislation in 82 and 84. And I think it was in 85, I sent him a memo saying, you know, you've really established, you know, this tremendous reputation, you know, as a crime fighter. You're perfectly positioned to support marijuana decriminalization. You know, what do you, you know, you know, this would be a, a good thing. And, you know... Uh, I, so this was in a memo I'd sent to him, and you know, some time goes by, and he finally calls me up to his office. So I want to talk to you about this memo, you know, and essentially says I think there, you know, there are two ways that I think I could be defeated for re-election. I think advocating marijuana decriminalization is one of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we didn't have to go any further. You know, I didn't have, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't going to sort of argue with him about well, no, your political assessment of your district, <laughs> your constituents is, uh, you know, less sophisticated than mine. Um, you know, he essentially answered the question. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like, you know, I would, I would use the term sometimes, I felt like a colonel in the Wehrmacht trying to save Jews. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I ranged for uh, a guy like Lester Grinspoon to testify before our committee about legislation that was designed to ban designer drugs. You know, Lester Grinspoon, you know, went on to be the chair of the Board of Normal. He, you know, was the scholar who wrote, you know, Marijuana Reconsidered, Psychedelics Reconsidered, mm-hmm. um, Marijuana Forbidden Medicine. You know, a, a you know a tremendously important scholar in our field. Um, and it was great, you know, that I, you know, I mean, I got to sort of suggest him to be a witness and no one said, Eric, no, you can't have, you can't invite that witness. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's same. In in those in the eighties, you know, we're talking about well before the internet. You know, um, the ability to access information was very limited. You know, reports were printed, and so you could have a a, a, a document that came from DEA or a document came comes from a House or Senate committee. And unless you actually know that it has been issued, um, you don't know it exists. It's it's mm-hmm. not online. There's no universe that make that's searchable. Um, I'm you know the only place that it seemed to me where you could get information out around this was High Times magazine, and there was a writer named Dean Latimer who wrote for High Times. And I would, you know, take these documents and I'd stuff them in an envelope with the congressional frank and I'd send them off to Dean Latimer at High Times Magazine, mm-hmm. you know, as a way to try to make available to the public, you know, information relevant to what was going on in drug policy in Washington. 
Um, and so, so it was really not a secret. Um, and, and, you know, there were always these challenges, um, you know, you know, how subversive could I be? And, and I'll give mm-hmm. you, you know, one example. In the 80s, the small-scale pharmacies, the local neighborhood pharmacy uh, on, you know, on Main Street in town, was struggling because out in the shopping center or in the mall was the CVS, the Rite Aid, the Walgreens, the big chain drug stores that were you know, f- very much expanding uh, their footprint. And the trade association of the local neighborhood pharmacies called the National Association of Retail Druggists, in order to justify their dues, in order to you know, stay alive as a trade association, came up with the idea that there should be a federal law to make the robbery of drugstores a federal crime. And there's a certain kind of logic to it. People are robbing the drugstores for the drugs. It's a crime to forge a prescription. It's a crime, you know, to embezzle drugs and so forth. Mm -hmm. But robbery, of course, is a very serious crime everywhere. And a... If a drugstore is being robbed, you're going to call 911 and the local police are going to respond and the local DA is going to prosecute these people. It's a very serious crime everywhere. You don't need to call the DEA field office in the state capitol to say we're going to send somebody down on Friday and he's going to look at the broken open safe. Mm-hmm. And say, yep, it looks like they stole a bunch of your drugs here. <laughs> right. You know, it, it made no sense from a law enforcement perspective. But if you didn't know anything about law enforcement and you're a druggist worried about two guys coming into your place and saying, give me your scheduled two narcotics, maybe this might help. Mm-hmm. So um, my boss uh, was a former local prosecutor, Congressman Hughes. He, he saw the folly of the legislation. But he wanted to get the political cooperation of the sponsor, um, Congressman Henry Hyde from Illinois, on other matters. And so we agreed to move ahead on the legislation. And so it was being reported in the various magazines like American Druggist and so forth. And the rules of the committee did not allow me to speak to reporters. Um, I wasn't a press secretary, but we had to speak to reporters because we were the ones who knew what was going on. And so I had printed uh, a label that was on my phone that said off the record. And it was to remind me when I picked up the phone, you know, to always say to the reporter, look, this is completely off the record. This is not for attribution. You can't attribute this to me in any way. You can't use what I'm saying. But here's the story. And so in the course of talking about pharmacy robbery and what to do about the problem of pharmacy robbery, I would say, after having gone off the record, what we really ought to do is legalize heroin. That you know these people were trying to steal narcotics wouldn't be mm-hmm. robbing pharmacies if they had a legal supply of heroin. You know, and you hear the guy on the other end of the line, you know, <laughs> gasp or maybe say, "Hmm, that's interesting." No one ever, you know, sort of wrote a story. House staffer advocating legalizing heroin to press. Right. That must have been a pretty shocking thing for them to hear, though. That's a kind of interesting musing. Let's go on to what's happening in the legislative process. 
Right. But these are examples of things that I was doing. Um, you know, many folks, we've all heard of you know the, the Drug Policy Alliance, the excellent work that it does. Um, but the Drug Policy Alliance arose out of a, an organization called the Drug Policy Foundation. And that mm -hmm. was started in 1986. And their first big event was an international conference in London, England. And um, I got the Judiciary Committee to pay to send me to London to attend that conference. Oh, awesome. I, I didn't realize that the that DPA had started off... Uh in the UK rather than the US. Well, it's, it's a US-based organization, and it was having its first international conference in London. Ah, mm -hmm. it, um, the, the founders of the Drug Policy Foundation were Dr. Arnold Treback, a professor at American University, and Kevin Zeese, the former national director of Normal. And Dr. Treback had had, an, every other year, a summer academic session in London where you could get credit as it, from AU to go to a two or three week course in London that he organized with the various reformers that he knew you know, from Europe and they would gather for this. And so he piggybacked the academic with the DPF founding conference that particular summer. So now, as, as we mentioned in your introduction, uh, you're the president of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. And so did that start around the same time? Could you talk a little bit about how exactly that got started up? Was that during or right after? Or was there a little bit of a gap after your work with Congress there? While I was doing this work in the Congress, um, it was extremely exciting. Um, not only did I have this work I was doing on drug policy, in which I was in the center of this, um, you know, working on designer drugs, I was also working on organized crime. I was working on money laundering. I was working on gun control. I was working on pornography. I had these incredibly exciting, high profile issues. You know, this was an exciting job with a lot of responsibility and, you know, and a fair deal of power. It was very exciting. Um, I had a great boss. Congressman Hughes was really intelligent. He was completely honest. He was very hardworking and he was a gentleman. He never failed to you know, thank me for the work that I was doing. Um, if I screwed up, you know, he didn't blow up, you know, and, and you know, uh, he was really a great guy to work for. And the chief counsel I worked for was a very shrewd uh, strategist. And so I was, I was continuing to learn stuff. I was involved in, you know, helping to create the Brady Bill, for example, in gun control. Um, I, I wrote an amendment that banned machine guns after 1986. I mean, a variety of interesting sorts of things I had my fingers on. But drug policy was really at the core of my passion. And I was increasingly, you know, disturbed, especially after the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Uh, that was very disturbing. And in the fall of 87, I realized, you know, I've been here, you know, almost eight years, you know, I don't want to keep doing this. What am I going to do differently? And I, I spent Columbus Day weekend in a, in a full 
intensive retreat to try to figure out, you know, wh what's my next move? And it was very clear to me I wanted to work to legalize drugs. That was where I was, my passion was. And I figured out sort of a kind of a plan. What is it going to look like? And what would I do? And how would I organize it? And what are the issues? Um, and once I had a plan, um, then I was sort of sensitive to the opportunities. And I heard about somebody who was interested in funding this kind of thing. And I reached out to him. Uh, I was able to find out you know, who his lawyer was and, and get an address and a phone number and introduced myself. And the guy said, well, so send us a proposal. And I was like, well, <laughs> I've never written a grant proposal before. I've never done that before. And so I wrote like a five-page thing with like a five-line budget and, and sent it off to them. And they weren't, you know, terribly sophisticated. And so they, they said, well, yeah, this looks interesting. Why don't you come up to Boston and talk with us? Oh, wow. And so there were a series of, of you know, some meetings and sending paper back and forth. And then by Labor Day, we had sort of a handshake that at the, in, in 1988, at the end of the Congress, after I finished all my work and the projects I was working on, I would start the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. And, and that's, that's what happened. So I went right from, from the Judiciary Committee you know, to uh, CJPF. I think this is a really interesting lesson. I mean, your, your overall career up to this point um, is a really interesting lesson for a lot of SSD peers who may be passionate about drug policy reform, but hesitant to get too involved um, with SSDP or even put it on their resume. And I think that's changing more as drug policy reform becomes more mainstream. But we do still have like a lot of members and especially newer members who are still hesitant to make their affiliation with whether it's SSDP or other organizations um, clear for for how it may have repercussions on their future job opportunities. And I think you you are a very specific and early example of even um, very outright activism, not interfering with your opportunity to work um, on legislation that might be uh, completely contrary in purpose to your personal beliefs. Um, I, I did want to touch on the on the fact that you've mentioned several I, I times wanna, already. Oh, this yes. is the appropriate moment just to say that to, 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 to to make the point that aside then from the, the career aspects, Rochelle, is that being open um, and honest about what my beliefs were is a position where it allows you to always be, you know, to speak from a place of integrity um, and people sort of respect that. And so when my daughter was very little in elementary school, even though people, you know, saw my bumper stickers and they knew what I did, if anybody, you know, looked me up on the internet, they knew quickly who I was and what I was mm -hmm. about. They asked me to be on the executive board of the PTA in my daughter's elementary school. Then they asked me to be a vice president. And then they nominated me to be co-president of the PTA. You know, I mean, you can't think of something more all wholesome and all-American uh -huh. than to be president <laughs> of the elementary school PTA. Uh -huh. You know, um, the county, Del Montgomery County, Maryland, you know, the, the largest county in our state has a, a committee called the Alcohol and Other Drug Abuse Advisory Council. These are 16 citizens appointed by the county executive to advise the county government on, you know, drug abuse prevention and drug abuse treatment. 
I got you know, nominated for this position. The county executive appointed me to this. I was interviewed. They knew who I was. But they, they knew that I wasn't going to come in and subvert their efforts, that they understood that I was sincerely interested in drug abuse treatment and effective drug abuse prevention. And so I had this position, and then after, you know, I you know, worked hard, and they, they elected me vice president to a couple of terms, and they elected me president for two terms. Then after my second term expired, they asked me to come back again, you know, and, and, and continue to serve. Um, you know, in Maryland, you know, the governor got to appoint somebody to the state medical cannabis commission. And knowing my background, they appointed me to the state medical cannabis commission. And so it's not so much a career in terms of employment. In my case, it's where there have been these purely discretionary kinds of public service activities, you know, in in the world of officialdom, where people have said, well, we're looking at the whole package here. Yes, this is what you believe. This is the work that you do. But that does not taint you. You're, you're successful. You're articulate. You're intelligent. You can, you, you know, if you commit to this work, we know you'll do this work and you do it well and you work well with others. And so it's ultimately those kinds of skills that I think people really learn in SSDP, you know, um, you know developing your organizational skills, your communication skills, your writing skills, you know. Being an SSDP, I think, you know, is such a tremendous opportunity for young people to develop, you know, the skills to succeed professionally. Um, you know, they should never have to worry that, that their involvement in SSDP is going to be a negative. So to go back uh, to your student activism, which you've mentioned, uh, which we've mentioned already a couple of times, um, and that's how, you know, that's how you developed your personal beliefs about drug policy before you even got involved with um, with Congress. So you were a student activist back in the 70s. And I see a lot of parallels now uh, between now and then as far as the the optimism that these days we're at a tipping point where we're about to end the drug war era and finally focus on health and treatment and compassion rather than stigmatization or criminalization of drug use and drug users. Um, and I feel like this was also a lot of the attitudes that we saw around the 70s um, and around a time when many states decriminalized uh, the possession of marijuana specifically. Um, but then we regressed almost immediately the following decade. So do you see you know, parallels between these two eras or are things different now? And can we, are we just setting ourselves up to be disappointed later on in a couple of decades when everything, you know, when the pendulum swings back the other way? Or, or do you see this, this new era of progress differing from how things were in the 70s? Rochelle, you've just asked a really important question um, about the sustainability of, of the progress that we're making and, and what the, f the future holds. I think we're certainly in a very different time than we were in the 70s. The, in the 70s, we had not yet fought a war on drugs as a top national agenda item for three decades or four decades. We didn't have hundreds of thousands of drug prisoners um, problem in, in, in most respects was much less. You didn't have, you know, the global criminal organizations that threatened governments like Mexico or Colombia thriving on the profits of the drug trade. The, the 
failure of prohibition is much more blatant now. And the, the energy to bring about reform is much more broad, much broader and, and deeper. In the 70s, I, it was a much more limited realm of expertise that was arguing for reform. There were commissions. Now we've got, you know, ballot initiatives. We've got, you know, polling data that shows how extensively the public understands the current problem. And we have a change in the universe around who are drug users or former drug users. That in the 70s, you, you had 12-step programs. In the 80s, you had 12-step programs of Alcoholics Anonymous. Narcotics Anonymous. And inherent in that anonymity is the shame and stigma associated with, with these diseases, with these disorders. Now we have faces and voices of recovery. We have people who are open that they are living in lives of recovery. And that everyone who's in recovery sort of knows that they are as stable as their recovery may be one traumatic event away from relapse mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they understand at the same time well the fact if I relapse going to prison is not going to help me being jailed is not going to help me that in fact the whole criminal approach is not helping people with drug problems and so we're we have I think much more sophisticated understandings throughout the society and in the world of drug policy, drug treatment, um, which I think is going to be sustained. There are certainly risks. You know, there is a real risk that um, marijuana legalization will not be well executed and there will be promotion and abuse and accidents. Teens, teen use will go up and um, the public will maybe disheartened. There is also a different libertarian climate now than there was in the 70s. And so there's much more of a sense about the questions of the liberty interests and the, ba and the, and the cost, the recognition that liberty entails risk and that these social risks are perhaps within the kinds of risks that we as a society tolerate for liberty, for freedom. You know, um, you know, as we're talking, the, you know, the headlines are about the economic risks of being an investor. I decide I want to uh, save for my future and I put my money in a mutual fund. And today that mutual fund is worth only 90 percent of what it was worth last week or 85 percent of what it was worth last week. Well, that's a pretty scary prospect. Well, that's inherent in capitalism. That's inherent in our entire social structure and the risks of, of accidents you know, from the use of, of cannabis and other drugs are within the realm of risk that we as a society, I think, are coming to sort of better understand. Yeah, and I think that is that is really heartening to hear from someone who, who experienced the movement back in the, the 70s and the backlash in the 80s that despite there being a significant number of parallels with what's happening now and that it is still a, a very different climate. And so I do have a lot of hope that at least when it comes to marijuana, that legalization is here to stay and that that's uh, some 
momentum that'll just continue until federal legalization comes down. But something also that always uh, is really interesting to me, I mean, maybe looking a little bit too far ahead, but thinking of, okay, marijuana is almost one now, what's next? And so of all these other drugs, whether what I worry about is marijuana kind of getting separated and then just continuing these terrible policies on the other ones, which also made me think of um, one of my favorite stories that I've heard from you over these years has been about uh, peyote, actually, and uh, some experiences back in, I don't remember if it was the 70s or the 80s that this happened, but essentially of of you helping arrange a peyote ceremony on the National Mall in D.C. And so I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that and uh, what, what sparked it and what exactly went down there. Very soon after I started the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called um, Employment Division of Oregon versus Smith. Smith was a Native American who was working in a drug treatment program in Oregon uh, and a member of the Native American Church of North America. And their sacrament is peyote. And the Native American Church of North America has been incorporated as a church since the early 20th century. The use of peyote religiously has, goes back to the witch hole, you know, to, you know, six, you know, like the sixth or seventh century of the common era, you know, completely precedes the Spanish conquest of, of Mexico. Um, and Smith, as a member of this church, was told, well, I'm sorry, you can't work in our drug treatment program anymore. You have to be drug free. And he was fired and he sought unemployment benefits. And Oregon said, no, you're not qualified for unemployment benefits because, you know, you're a drug user. And he challenged that determination because he said, look, this, you know, you're asking me to give up my faith. You're asking me to give up my religion. This would be like saying you're going to fire me because I wear ceremonial headgear or I wear a, a, a scarf or, or, you know, I, I honor the Sabbath, you know, and you're going to fire me. Um, the Supreme Court in this decision sort of kind of out of the blue reversed what were long-standing precedents of the Supreme Court regarding the free exercise protection that the court had previously established, that um, the government could not enforce a law that substantially infringed upon the free exercise of religion unless the government could demonstrate that it had a compelling interest and that this infringement was the least restrictive way of accomplishing this government interest. And the Supreme Court just threw that out, and it was a bombshell, bombshell in first American law. And, uh, you know, the Baptists and the Catholics and the Jews and all of, you know, religious groups got together, you know, this is terrible, this is absolutely terrible, and they, they formed the Coalition for the Free Exercise of Religion to begin to agitate to fix this terrible Supreme Court decision. The members of the Native American Church of North America were even more concerned because they had been persecuted in their use of peyote under state law, and many states had not recognized the legitimacy of their use of peyote. The federal government had. And um, I've been uh, a Quaker since I became convinced about how Quakers live and worship and their role as pacifists 
since the early 70s. And one of the things about Quakers is that when they came to North America in the 17th century, William Penn negotiated with the Indians to buy the land that had been given to him by the king. That he recognized that it wasn't the king's to give. And that he established a relationship with Indians that Quakers have sort of carried forward for, you know, some 400 years to treat them with equality and dignity. And there's a, a, a lobby called the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which is the oldest religious lobby in Washington. And they had on the staff a guy who was a specialist in, uh, who worked on Indian affairs, who was a specialist in the use of peyote and was personal friends with the leaders of the Native American Church of North America. And they had a conference in Washington to say, you know, what are we going to do? The afternoon before this conference, I got a phone call. Somebody on the staff had remembered that I used to work for the House Judiciary Committee and knew that I was a Quaker and thought, geez, this is about drugs. Eric Sterling knows something about drug laws. Maybe he has something to contribute to this meeting. So, you know, I kind of brought into this meeting, you know, not much preparation, didn't know anything about this church. Um, and I'm just kind of sitting, you know, on the side listening and sort of kind of hearing what's going on and, um, you know, hearing the concerns of the elders of the church, the president of the church and so on. And um, at the end of it, you know, I said, well, you know, speaking as someone who's you know recently been a congressional staffer, I would say there's, you know, to some extent you have a bit of a communications challenge. You know, people, you know, you know, white people are going to think peyote, psychedelic drugs, uh, LSD, Timothy Leary, Woodstock, Grateful Dead. Uh, they're not going to understand what your worship is. You know, if I want to know what how Muslims worship, I can go to the mosque. If I want to know how Buddhists worship, I can go to a Buddhist temple. If I want to see how Jews worship, I can go to a temple or a synagogue. You know, all these churches, they advertise, there are signs out front, but you know, your worship is in a teepee out somewhere. It's not advertised. I can't sort of plan on some Sunday morning, you know, to squeeze in a little peyote worship before the football game. Mm -hmm. So, um, People don't know what it is. And I said, well, why don't, why don't you, you know, do one of your worship ceremonies on the mall? And it's like, no, we're, you know, <laughs> I mean, we're not some kind of a spectacle. We've had enough of that. We're not going to do a rain dance and put on our headdress. You know, absolutely not. You know, not, not going to happen. Well, you know, would, you know, you know, would you do it in a more private way, you know, and sort of invite people, you know, so, so, you know, members of Congress, their staff, key journalists, religious leaders. Well, that we could do. So um, that led to the formation of something called the Native American Religious Freedom Project that we ran out of my office. And I, you know, started looking around to find a place where we could do this worship. There's a, the local Indians in Washington, D.C. were the Piscataway, and the Piscataway have property in Prince George's County, Maryland. Um, it's not reservation property, 
And I called up the state's attorney in Prince George's County and said, you know, we're thinking about doing this, you know, worship, you know, uh, uh, you, you have any problems? Absolutely. You know, we're <laughs> about drug use in Prince George's County, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. <laughs> um, so I called the National Park Service and they and sort of ran the idea. And they, we love this idea. You know, <laughs> That's um, so surprising. The park will we'll close off a section of the park for you guys. You know, we'll, lovely idea. You know, we love working with Native Americans. Do it all over the country, you know. Uh, you know, no legal problems, not at all. Peyote, you know, we're, no problem. Um, so we then arranged, so the president of the Native American Church of North America, Emerson Jackson, we arranged for a ceremony on the mall. We erected a teepee. We had an, uh, a Navajo honor guard. Somebody from Senator Inouye's staff came and made remarks. Emerson Jackson spoke, and then Reuben Snake, a very prominent roadman in the church, wrote a, read a speech that I had ghostwritten for him, which is the, the speech I am most proud of having ghostwritten in all the ghostwritten speeches I've ever written, um, which is up on our website, you know, talking about sort of the meaning of this. And it happened, this was on Yom Kippur, and it was the same day that the National Cathedral on Massachusetts Avenue was being dedicated. It was a big deal here in Washington. And so it was declared by the Native American Church of North America as a holy day of peace. And after our ceremony, we went off to Greenbelt Park and three sacred fireplaces were erected. And we had worship in three different teepees. And uh, that, was, that was an amazing experience. It is not a quick slip into church before the football game. It is a 12-hour all-night worship from sundown to sunup, singing and chanting and praying. Uh, and the, the medicine is only ingested at about midnight. Um, and uh, it's a family kind of thing, you know, lot, you know, a lot of interrelated, you know, with cousins and relatives. My, my brother came down from New York to join me. So it was a very powerful, wonderful experience. And then the, there's a fasting that is broken with a communal meal afterward. Um, in 1994, President Clinton signed the American Indian Religious Freedom uh, Act amendments that guaranteed to Native Americans in all the states the right to the unimpeded use of peyote uh, in their worship. That's amazing. I mean, I just with the political climate today, for some reason, I just can't imagine that same sort of thing happening. And to think that it happened decades ago is just incredible. And I, I really wish that I could have been there for something like that. That's and just so fantastic to see that it uh, ended up being so successful, too, and leading to an actual federal legislation, which is so rare nowadays. Um, yeah, and especially with the support of a federal agency, the National Park Services, too. Um, that truly is amazing. So this brings us to the end of our discussion this week. Um, and we always try to wrap up our discussions with a call to action uh, to make sure that we're both educating people and using that knowledge to improve our communities and make positive change. So if you, Eric, could have listeners do one thing right now, what would your call to action be? I would encourage your listeners to call the White House and tell President Obama that if he wants his criminal justice reforms to actually be enacted, he has got to make this an, an agenda item number one across the board. He's got to call 
governors of states that have been successful in reducing their prison populations. He needs to reach out to unfamiliar allies like the business community or veterans and mobilize them to be part of his criminal justice policy reform initiative. If he doesn't take take action soon and urgently on this, it's going to die in all of the political warfare of the 2016 election. And he will have forfeited a priceless opportunity and a priceless moment to enact important criminal justice reform, including ending, you know, or limiting mandatory minimum sentencing. It's really, you know, the president really needs to do more than just give a speech to the NAACP if he wants this legislation to pass. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, we'll be sure to put the uh, the White House's phone number right up on our website so that you can make sure to actually uh, make that call. And um and unfortunately, that is all the time that we've got today. I feel like you've just got so many good stories in history that we could probably talk for hours. And so maybe we'll be able to have you on for another episode down the road. But thank you again, Eric, so much for, for joining us today. Well, Sam and Rochelle, thank you for the honor of inviting me to be on your podcast. And um, um, I look forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. And for everyone, this has been Eric Sterling, a man of many, many titles, but uh, the executive director of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation, and we'll just call him the godfather of the drug policy reform movement.